Welcome to Women of Marvel. I'm Judy Stevens. I'm Ellie Pyle. And I'm Angelique Rocher. Okay, today's episode is all about young adult fiction, aka YA, and we have two epic authors here to talk all about it. But before we get into that, actually, I would love to hear from you two, Angelique and Ellie. What did you read in middle school and high school? Ellie, why don't we start with you? So I read a lot of Madeline Langle. I read all of those books, actually, which was interesting because they kind of aged with you. Like you could start out with Wrinkle in Time and then move into Many Waters and all of that. But by the time you got to some of the later ones, you started getting into some stuff that maybe was a little bit more adult and you had some questions about. So it was kind of neat, that progression. And in fact, I always got myself into trouble by reading above my grade level. That's how I learned that some things were not real. I was very heartbroken that a book was telling me that magic wasn't real when I was a kid and cried for like hours. I have to caveat, my dad's a librarian and my mother's like a voracious reader. And my grandmother loved Harlequin novels. So I have to like answer this question in a very weird way because I had a sister who left me like Robin Cook novels. And so I was reading like Coma in like sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And I was also reading Jurassic Park, but my mother loved John Grisham. So I was reading The Firm at that time. But also I was like the kid who was like, Scholastic Book Fair, give me Amelia Bedelia and everything else you have. So it's kind of weird. I think I actually got more into like what they call young adult fiction as an adult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I was reading like, Sparkle Hater and Melanie Ron and Laurel K. Hamilton, which is clearly not made for young adults before I was 17. Let's just put it that way. Well, and I think that classification got a little bit more defined kind of as we became adults, whereas I was very much like you, Angelique. I was reading John Grisham as a middle schooler and like tearing my way through. I remember my mother having to write a note to the school library at one point that I was allowed to check out books that the Catholic school librarian thought were not for me yet. And my mom was like, no, she can read them, give them to her. But I think that there was not as much defined the idea of YA as a genre when we were young adults as there is now. And I'm with you. I read more YA now than I did as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. All my friends were reading Harry Potter. I did not read Harry Potter when I was younger. I got into Divergent when I was in my 30s. But I do remember there were classic ones, right? There was The Giver. There was The House Mm. on Mango Street. There were very classic novels that we read when we were kids. So I think it was, right, it was very amorphous. Yeah, I think also it was like the 90s. They wanted us to read. They didn't care what we were reading. And so for me, who was reading R.L. Stein, literally I would like finish an R.L. Stein book in a day at third grade, fourth grade, because my aunt worked at a bookstore and she always would send me books growing up. And so I always had plentiful books. And then at some point, my fourth grade teacher was like, please stop reading this R.L. Stein and handed me my first Stephen King book. So I started reading Stephen King in like fourth grade. I might have been 10 
10 or 11. I was like the kid that I was always reading growing up. And I still love to read now. I think I'm one of the few, one of my friends that actually, actually a bunch of my friends are getting really into YA and the sort of same sort of sci-fi fantasy world. You know, obviously I was not YA, but got into Lord of the Rings. I was very into fantasy and stuff like that. That was really what I was into. It's so funny that just like you, Angelique, I came into YA later on in my life as an adult. I feel like there are fandoms and books and all of these other things that are just so key and core. And I love the fact that my nieces and my nephews get to grow up in this whole new world. And Ellie, you mentioned it and Judy, you kind of alluded to it, where now we do have this category of YA, young adult fiction. Yeah, and it's brought a whole collection of new authors, people who may not necessarily have wanted to like write novels specifically for YA, but have written these amazing, incredible stories. We have talked to many of those authors over the years here on the podcast, including, you know, Rainbow Royale, Margaret Stoll. And, you know, as you talked about last week in your roundtable conversation, Ellie, Lauren Bissom, the editor, mentioned that YA books tend to skew female in both of terms of, you know, writers and readers. And I've always been incredibly curious about that. You know, why is that? What is it about writing pose for younger audiences? It's a question that's been on my mind for a long time. Going all the way back to the first time I went to Y'all West and Y'all Fest. And for those who don't know, Y'all Fest and then Y'all West are book festivals that celebrate young adult fiction writers and readers. And they were originally created by Margaret Stroll along with a few other YA writers And there are these amazing events. They actually just celebrated their 10th anniversary, and I was so happy to be able to be there. But I remember when I first stepped into the space at the events and being like, oh, my God, there's all these women here. And look at all these young girls. And this is phenomenal. Like after going to comic book conventions for so many years, I was like, what is this? But so for this week's episode, I invited two authors to talk all about it. First, I talked to Nick Stone who is epic, by the way. Nick has written a ton of YA, including two books about Shuri, with a third one coming out soon. Make sure you go pre-order right now. She's also written five other YA and middle grade books, like Dear Martin and Clean Getaway. So we talked a lot about what it's like writing for young people and hypothesized a little bit about why girls gravitate toward these books. So check out my conversation with Nick Stone. Hey, Nick. Welcome to Women of Marvel. So, to kick it off, when did you first start writing or thinking of yourself as a writer? So, I was actually doing an internship with this house of prayer. I would write these updates, updating people at home about like what I was doing and the places I'd visited, et cetera, et cetera. And they wound up being these super long emails with like pictures, et cetera. But up until that point, and even a bit after, I didn't think I had the imagination to write fiction because I just didn't see people who looked like me who weren't Toni Morrison or Alice Walker or like these bastions of literature. I didn't see people like me writing books, so I didn't think it was a thing that we did. So I was writing these updates, and I kept getting this really positive feedback about it. So then after I got married, I actually started a couple of blogs. One was about like, it was like Confessions of a Newlywed or something. Girl, I don't know what I was doing. And then the (laughs) other one, the other one had something to do with like, what was happening with my faith. I don't even remember the name of that one, but I had two blogs. And so I started writing, but it was more in this like expository way. Like it wasn't fictional. It was just me 
spilling my thoughts and using lots of metaphor. But I think it was through that that I realized, wait, I do actually like doing this. But it still, it took a few more years before I even thought to sit down and try to write fiction. And I'm glad I did because, like, I'm not terrible at it. You know, it's like one of those yeah, things where you don't. I think you're don't... terrible at it. I think you're yeah, very but good it's one at of those it. things where, like, you don't know, you will have no idea what you're good at if you haven't tried it, you know? So shout out to Veronica Roth because the Divergent series was like the first book series where I saw a black girl live all the way through the end of the damn series. Like, it was like miraculous. Like, oh, wait, black people survive apocalypses? Who knew? So reading that character is what kind of gave me, it's not even that it gave me the courage to try. It was more like, oh, wait, if black people can survive an apocalypse, maybe I can make a black girl the hero of a story. It was something that had never occurred to me before. So yeah, I started writing seriously at like 28. When Nick Stone decides she's going to do something, she's going to do it. You know, (laughs) like it's one of those things where like the tunnel vision is pretty hardcore. Was it the Divergent series that drew you to YA? Why you decided you wanted to write younger characters? No, actually. I mean, I was reading, I think the first YA book series I read was actually The Hunger Games. And I loved it. Like, loved it. And I think part of the reason I loved it so much is because I remember reading the first book and just being blown away by the fact that, like, the majority of that book happens with Katniss completely alone. The fact that there's an author out there who was able to maintain tension and I'm like turning these pages almost at the speed of light, wondering what's gonna happen. And she's not even talking to anybody. Like it just, it it was a thing that just blew my mind. And then I had a friend who was like, oh, you like the Hunger Games, you should read this book series. And so I read Divergent and then I got on this dystopia kick and was reading like dystopia series after dystopia (laughs) series. But Divergent was the only one that had black people in it the hunger games had a couple black people but they were all dead by the end of book one so shout out to divergent man when i did start writing ya though it's more that i started writing around the time i was starting to understand my own adolescence so like when i sat down to write that's what came out obviously you've written like middle grade and and ya but is it different writing processes or is it just the way that you like funnel your brain into the paper I have the same process for every single project. I have a mnemonic. I'm such a nerd. People have no idea. But my mnemonic is I only eat raspberries. So inspiration is when I get the idea. Organization is when I organize the idea, like get a composition notebook and write down everything I can think of related to the idea. I'll pull together an outline and then I move into execution, which is when I write a draft and then I revise and... It's the same every time. I'm kind of thankful it's the same every time because it's chaotic enough in my head just telling different stories. If I had to tell them different ways, I don't know that I would like be a person who could put together a sentence. So you start writing books about people with your skin tone. I feel like there was sort of this moment in time with YA where like we went from like predominantly white protagonists, white authors, and suddenly YA sort of exploded into this incredible community. Did you sort of see that happen? Was that something that you were able to like be a part of? Yeah, it started in 2014. 
So interestingly enough, 2014 is also the year that I had, I submitted my first novel, but like it was right before everything started bubbling with regard to diverse books. So there were two op-eds in the New York Times in 2014, one by Walter Dean Myers and one by his son, Chris Myers. And both of them kind of lamented the lack of diverse books about children. And this is the same year that WNDB, We Need Diverse Books, started and it was launched by a group of incredible women, most of whom are East Asian. And right before all of this goes on, I'm submitting this book about this black girl who glows in the dark, right? Like I've written this contemporary fantasy and I loved it. I thought it was great, which was probably part of the problem because every book that I've written and not liked, everybody's like, we love this one. So maybe I'm just off on my own books. But anyway, I wrote this book called Little Spark. And I remember going on submission with it and it was just like no after no after no. And for a while I thought it was because it was bad. But then I went back through and I reread it last summer and I'm like, no, this book isn't bad. People just didn't want it because at that point they were still under the impression that books about black kids don't sell. We even got a couple of rejections that were like, ah, yeah, there's really nothing here that makes it stand out. We were like, well, the main character's black. Like, that's a thing. And they were like, oh, well, that doesn't really matter. I don't really know that that would even help us at all. And I was like, okay. So the interesting thing is the next year, January the next year, is when I wound up selling Dear Martin. So it's like over the course of a year, people were starting to think a little bit differently. I think in 2015, there were two African-American authors that had debut YA novels. So like 2015, there were a couple. 2016, again, like one or two or three. 2017, I think there were like seven of us. And it started to kind of build little by little. And now they're in double digits, which sounds huge, but isn't yet. Like, I'll be happier when the percentage of like black people in the country matches the percentage of books published about black characters. Like that'd be cool. Just saying. But also I need more than that as well. I mean, I think it's just proven that clearly, and it's the same story in comics, right? That like for so long people said that women didn't read comics and then, Oh, people of color don't read this. But I wonder if like, because YA has so many more female and like queer fans, if that pushed it earlier than comics. You know, I don't know. I will say the women piece, maybe. YA is definitely an industry that typically has been driven by white women. The queer part didn't really start until like there were definitely queer men, gay men writing YA books for a long time. Like David Levithan's been writing books for forever, right? But it took this boom of books that came out under the diverse umbrella. So like the LGBTQIAP plus spectrum is considered a part of the diversity spectrum, right? So I think all of these things happening at once. And look, it is a very, very, very clear message. If you put people in books those people in real life will buy and read those books. Like, it's very simple. Like, it's a very simple equation. And it has always made me laugh when people are like, oh, well, this demographic doesn't read. I'm like, you're not a part of this demographic. How would you know whether or not we read? It's men who say, well, women don't read comics. And it's not black people saying black people don't read. You know, like, there are all of these, we call them gatekeepers. Most of them have been, like, run out of the building at this point, which is wonderful. 
But these gatekeepers, they just had these opinions and they kind of held the keys to the kingdom for such a long time. And now they're mad because they don't have anything to do. So I guess the question is, do you have any theories about why women might be predominantly YA readers? I mean, it's a difficult question to answer. I do think that a lot of it has to do with patriarchy and kind of the push of boys towards the industries that make the most money and typically don't involve a lot of leisure reading. I think that's partially it. I'm sure there has it has something to do with emotions and emotional development, et cetera. But I will say, I find that it can be a little trickier to get straight boys to read YA novels. They got to be able to connect with the stuff going on in the book. And I find it fascinating because the same isn't true in middle grade. Like middle grade boys have no problem reading books. It's when you get to that YA space that things go a little wonky. And I do think that there aren't a ton of books about dudes. Like I think about John Green, right? John Green was such a staple in the YA community that I do think for a long time, people were looking at his book sales and kind of judging what the demographics of YA characters actually were based on literally four books, you know? So that uh, there is this kind of conflation of volume of books sold and the idea of what types of characters are selling. But I do think that is starting to wane. My hope is that more dudes find things they actually want to read in this space. I've had some conversations with some white boys lately that are like, I'm glad that you're being made to think about that, young man. Good. Like, there are so many things that have been just taken for granted for so long. Maybe it does have to do with girls needing some kind of community and finding it in books. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I will be really interested to see how the conversation about gender evolves, how children grew up now because like growing up I was considered a tomboy Mm -hmm. which is not a term anyone uses anymore but like I was going against the expected gender norm of a girl growing up in America so and I'm very happy that people are having that conversations and they're having their conversations in books which is also phenomenal yes and I am so thrilled and of course there need to be more but I am very very glad to see more narratives being published not only being published but being like elevated that are written by people who are a part of the trans community people who are non-binary people who are agender like you know there's so many different life experiences that it's important for us to see on the page because stories are where we realize that we're all connected you know so I know things will kind of continue moving forward. I just hope they move forward away from some of the foolishness we're seeing in like legislation. Whew, this is such a weird time to be alive. It's It's such a weird time. Like, it's weird. You know, times of great unrest, they do produce really great art. And I just hope that it's the kind of art that continues to make waves into the future. Yeah, reflect, make people think. Yeah. Make people have conversations. Yeah, I think that the art that in theory will live on is the ones that looked back on like what the pandemic has done to this society as a whole because we're all experiencing it together unlike many things that have happened. This is really deep. 
Look, I mean, this is where we at. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, let's talk about Sherry now. <laughs> yes, we can definitely. That's so definitely a thing we can okay. do. Okay, for listeners who might not know, Shuri is Black Panther's younger and more tech-savvy sister. So coming into writing Shuri previous to that, you had only written characters of your own, right? So this was the first time taking on a character in a universe that wasn't yours. What was yeah. that experiencing like? I lucked out. I'm glad that I'm not Jason Reynolds and I didn't have to do like Miles Morales. Because this is the thing. Shuri, is, she's still pretty new. You know, she was introduced by Reginald Hudlin which is like the run before Ta-Nehisi Coates' run. So it's not like she's existed in the canon since 1966, like Black Panther has. Her being so new gave me a lot of leeway. You know, in the comics, she's introduced at like 19 or 20. And then even with the film from 2018, she's like 17 or 18. You know, she's like an older teenager. So when I took on this project and decided I was going to make her 13, I basically had free reign to literally build her a backstory. And it has been utterly delightful. Like, I've had so much fun writing these books. The third one comes out January 4th. And just living in Wakanda during the pandemic has been, it was like the best part of the pandemic. Because I would like escape to a hotel and write for like three days straight. So I basically was in Wakanda in my imagination for three days straight without interruption. Man, it was great. So great. But yeah, taking on another individual's IP was daunting, but also not because everybody that I've interacted with at Marvel, y'all all understand the collaborative nature of creating characters that people fall in love with is my favorite thing about writing in this medium and especially writing prose in this medium. Signing on to write Shuri, was there something that you specifically wanted to write to introduce to her story or to continue something that was already introduced in her story? So the first contract was for two books. The first one, they gave me the concept they wanted me to do. Like the heart-shaped herb is dying, go. (laughs) So so I had to kind of spit a story out of that. And I made it about climate change. Nick Stone does not know how to write a story without like putting some kind of social issue in there somewhere. So that one was about climate change and then the other two so I wound up signing on to do a third one like I said it comes out in January and like the other two I just kind of got to like do what I wanted to do with them and it was a lot of fun the one thing that always bothered me a little bit about Shuri was like where are her friends like why doesn't she have where her homegirls at like black girls we don't survive without our homegirls it's just not a thing it's not a thing that we do so I got to give her a friend that's been the highlight I named her Kamara, and she is ridiculous. She's this, like, very short 14-year-old who just was promoted to, like, a junior Dora Milaje, which I totally made up because until this new book, there was no such thing as a junior Dora Milaje. Well, that's how the Marvel Universe evolves, continues, every person. Somebody decided that this is a thing now, so it is. Yeah, and it's and canon. So it was. It is now canon. You have created canon. Nick. I've created canon. <laughs> One final question for you. Do you have sort of have any advice for young authors, specifically authors of color who want to get into this space? If you are a person who is really interested in getting into the Marvel book space, whether you want to write comic books, graphic novels, prose novels, verse novels, whatever you want to write, The first step 
is doing a good job writing books that are not Marvel books. <laughs> like my whole Marvel story is like, I was just going about my business doing my work and I got an email <laughs> asking me to come into the space, right? So there is something to be said for doing what you do to the best of your ability. And that involves actually doing it. I interact with a lot of aspiring writers who are only, you're only aspiring because you haven't sat down and written anything. If you sit down and write, you become a writer. So sit down and write is my biggest piece of advice. I did have to do a lot of, like I go to therapy twice a week. Your girl is very mental health minded because it did take me a minute to kind of overcome the conditioned inferiority complex that I had just from being like a queer black woman in America, growing up a queer black girl in America, like definitely had an inferiority complex. And working through that, I actually was able to work through it by telling the stories that I wanted to tell. So that's my, my biggest piece of advice is sit down and write, write the things you wanna write. Initially, nobody has to read it. So you can do what you want, you know? Do it, because if you don't do it, it won't get done. That's so true. Find the thing that helps you write. Is it writing a page a day? Mm -hmm. Like find the thing that allows you to write and then do it. Because if you don't do it, no one else might. Literally will not get done. Yeah. Like, and yes, it's like, oh, well, okay, somebody else will write an X-Men book. Yes, but they won't write the X-Men book that you would have written. And that's important. You know, if there's one thing that I stress to young writers, it's that like literally nobody can do precisely what you can do. So go be the person who does it. Nick, this is such a great conversation. And also, Shuri, A Black Panther Novel, and Shuri the Vanished are both available right now. Go get them at your local bookstore or online. Pick it up. And where can people find you on the internet, Nick? I am at Nick Stone on Instagram. And that's really the only social media that matters to me. And shameless plug, pre-order Shuri Symbiosis because... It is absolutely the best of the three. Like, hands down, zero doubt. I had such a blast writing that book. And if you're a Marvel fan and you hear the word symbiosis, you've got an idea of why it was the best one. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us, Nick. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Nick for chatting with me, for hypothesizing with me. What a good time. So Nick has obviously written a lot of YA, but I also wanted to talk to someone with sort of an opposite experience, someone who has written across a lot of genres and media. So Sam Maggs writes comic books. She writes TV, video games, and prose books. And she's written two YA books, including The Unstoppable Wasp for Marvel in 2020. I talked to her about her work and what makes writing YA different than, uh, say, maybe writing a video game or a graphic novel. So here's my conversation with Sam. Hello, Sam. I'm so excited to have you on. Hi. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to be here. And it's always an absolute delight chatting with you. We always have the best time. So thanks for having me. Yes, definitely. And, you know, we're obviously excited to have you on. This episode is all about how has YA sort of evolved and changed and brought more people into comics and into the superhero communities. But before we get all to that, who are you, Sam? What do you do? No. <laughs> well, uh, my name is Sam Maggs. I'm a writer. And I just wanted to say off the top, I have a little dog named Evie who's on my lap and snoring away right now. So if you do hear any soft snores, please know that that's my little dog and not me. <laughs> oh, my God. I can hear her. She's so cute. 
good. She's a big suck and she likes to cuddle in the mornings. But yes, so I, I write books and comics and video games. I've written for Marvel's Spider-Man on the PlayStation. I've written The Unstoppable Wasp Built on Hope for Marvel Press. Marvel Action Captain Marvel for IDW and just a whole bunch of other junk on top of that. So it's been an absolute delight writing so much for Marvel, which is a universe that I am so deeply invested in and love to my core. It's been very cool to write for you guys across multiple mediums and to see how that process is different depending on what kind of media you're writing for. What was the thing that like made you want to be a writer? Oh, gosh. Well, it's pretty much always been the only thing I've ever been any good at. (laughs) So I kind of knew that it was what I wanted to do. I was a big reader growing up. I was obsessed with books like Tamora Pierce. And I was also a huge fan of like all media. Like I was a big gamer. I was obsessed with TV shows like Stargate when I was younger, like genre. But I actually didn't get into comic books until I was in college because I grew up during the 90s. And if you know anything about comics during the 90s, you know they didn't exactly say 11-year-old girl, um, come read me, (laughs) necessarily. But um, I was a big fan girl and loved falling into these fictional universes. And so I started writing my own short stories when I was around 11, 12, and then just kept doing that. I won like my high school's English award. I did a bachelor's in English. I did my master's in English. And... Yeah, it was just, it's always what I wanted to do. But for a really long time, I didn't exactly know how to do that professionally. No one really tells you when you're growing up, like, oh, you can write comics for a living or you can make video games for a living. Or they didn't at that time. I think a lot more people now know that the barrier to entry is a lot lower and it's a lot more achievable. But at that time, you know, it wasn't an option for me necessarily. So it was kind of all about stumbling into this career for myself in the best way I knew how. (laughs) Did you always want to write within sort of this fandom communities? You thought that like maybe you would just write a novel based on your own characters or did you always want to be a part of this world? It's funny. I always really wanted to write television shows like sci-fi or genre or superhero TV shows. And I didn't really know how to do that. And especially being Canadian, as you said, like you can't just move to L.A., there are different countries and the U.S. (laughs) government does tend to frown on that, unfortunately. But like, it's even harder to get a foot in the door up north. And so instead, I started writing online for a geek culture website at the time called The Mary Sue, which was all about like women in geek culture, because really being a fangirl was the only thing I felt that I knew how to write about with any kind of authority. It was like the thing I was most passionate about and spent the most time thinking about and existing in that world. And so that was sort of my entryway. And Then I was very fortunate to go from writing about being a fangirl of things and being a passionate fan of things like comics and genre to being able to actually sort of swap sides and be able to start creating those things as well. So you broke in through the Mary Sue, which was a pivotal website in a time where we definitely needed those sort of discussions, those conversations as more women, as more queer people came into comics, into fandom, but like... I mean, you've written so many different things at this point. You've written, like, articles for the websites. You've written prose novels. You've written video games. Like, how is it to sort of wrap your brain around all these different types of media? I actually really like it because I think if I was always just writing one thing, 
it would become very monotonous. It would maybe be more difficult. But the great thing about writing like a comic in the morning and then working on some video game scripts in the afternoon and writing some prose words at night or whatever is it it all feels different. Even though it is technically all sitting down at my computer and writing, it all feels really, really different. So it keeps things really interesting and it keeps me from feeling burnt out of any one particular thing because I don't know, maybe this is my ADHD brain, but it does help to have like a few different things on the go. I don't know if I could write four novels at the same time. You know what I mean? But writing like a novel, a comic, and a video game, that feels more doable. Moving forward, as we see more of this like IP crossover where comics become TV shows, become movies, become video games, that sort of cross-disciplinary writing skill, I think is going to become more and more valuable. So I always encourage my fellow video game writers to try to make some comics, etc. Because it makes you really invaluable as a talent if you're able to, you know, none of it is rocket science, like I'll say <laughs> that much, but there are certain tips and tricks and things that work when making a comic that won't work when making video game and rules that you have to follow for each medium, which you can, of course, break as well. But, you know, you have to know them before you break them. So, yeah, it's all just a matter of having someone reach out a hand and teach you how to do those things, show you a comic script mentor you in a game job. I like to try to be that person for other writers in the industry because making a living out of writing is not always the easiest thing. Yeah. It can be tough. And also in an industry that, in multiple industries that you have touched are very male orientated. Yes, that is definitely true. Yeah, I think um, this is probably an old statistic at this point, but comics are something like 16% women and video games are like 23% women, like pretty low totals altogether. We're talking low stuff. At the last video game studio I worked for full time, their goal was to get to 20% women at the studio. That was like a really big thing for them that they were working towards. So yeah, you do feel like you're often the only woman in the room. You're often the only queer person in the room. And that presents a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of very unique challenges. Yeah, challenges. I think that's the the key word there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, so you talked about statistics. I mean, something like 60% of the market for young adult novels is women. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that more women are so invested into sort of young adult novels, sort of more prose Such an interesting question, and I'm certain that other people have much better answers for this than I do, but my thought has always been, and why I personally have always been drawn to YA over like adult fiction or literary fiction, is that YA has such a strong focus on character over plot. And I, as a writer and a consumer of fiction, always care more about character than plot. For me, like a story can have the most interesting plot in the world, but if I don't care about the characters, I don't care about the plot. Like I just, I have to care about the people. And YA has such a strong focus and emphasis on character development and relationship and internality of thoughts and, you know, developing sexualities and relationships and all of this stuff that that's what I find very appealing about it. And that's what I think maybe a lot of other girls and women and non-men find appealing about it. That's from my perspective why I really enjoy it is this character focus. And it's what made writing The Unstoppable Wasp novel so interesting is that in prose fiction with superheroes, you get so much time to spend on their inner thoughts 
whereas comics are so action-focused, image-focused. In a prose novel, you can spend a whole chapter just being like, how does it feel to be small? (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever, which is something you don't really have the page space for in most comics. So... Yeah, I don't know. That's what I think. What do you think? Do you have an answer to that? I think that's a really interesting question. Okay, I'm going to blend episodes of this season. We talked all about fanfic and sort of how fic has sort of built this community of people online and how that sort of expanded into obviously many of these authors going on to publish work. So I was wondering like if this all connects, like if all these different elements of like these spaces that we found online via fic or cosplay created this space that allowed women to connect to these places and maybe we just really liked the word more than we liked necessarily reading comics. Like comics always felt like a space that we didn't belong in, right? So I don't know if that's an answer. It's something that like I'm sort of thinking about. It is interesting. Like I bet it's like all these things coming together. There are all those statistics about like people who prefer reading over images in terms of like mental stimulation and all this stuff. And I think that's definitely part of it. I love your answer about fic and fandom communities and how we all sort of grew up reading essentially novels of our favorite characters <laughs> online. Like I'm literally currently reading a Mass Effect fan fiction that is over a million words at this a point. A million words? <laughs> a million words, which is bananas. And I still read it every week. And like, so, you know, that seems really intrinsic to how we learned to relate to fandoms. Like my dad was a huge comic book fan. He was really into Silver Age comics, big Spider-Man fan. But despite the fact that he really tried to get me into it growing up, I never really embraced it because, again, like I said, 90s comics didn't really look like they were for me. I didn't feel comfortable walking into comic book stores until I was in like my mid-20s, to be honest. And it wasn't until I got to college and I read I read Why the Last Man and I read Marvel's Runaways. And I was like, oh my gosh, these characters are like me. There are queer people here. These look like the people I hang out with. They sound like the people I hang out with. This is a really interesting story. It didn't feel like I had to have this like massive lore knowledge of Marvel in order to come into it and read it. And that was the first time I was like, ah, I feel welcomed by comics. So until then, anything else would have been prose fiction and fanfic online. So that is really interesting. Yeah, I buy that. Yeah, I because I, I think yeah. it also like connects because there's such a huge community of like specifically within like Marvel fandoms online in fic now. Yeah, of that course. is also super fascinating. Okay, so let's go back to your writing. I mean, thinking about that, when you go to start to write a YA book, is your headspace in a different space, or you're just thinking of the character? Like, is there a way that you adapt? knowing that your audience might be different? Hmm, That's a great question. So I actually start all of my writing in a very similar way. And I think this is because I work primarily for IP holders, for existing characters like Star Wars, Marvel, that kind of thing. And so when you're working with IP holders, you have to get a lot of buy-in at every step of the way. And this is also very similar in video games, where even if you are working with original IP, you have your creative director, your publisher, your studio head, you have a lot of people that you have to like get on board with the story that you're making before you put too much time and resources into it, lest someone say like, you're not allowed to do this, I'm not comfortable with this, this doesn't work for me, I think this is bad, (laughs) etc. So I spend a lot of my time in the outline phase, regardless of the medium. And this proves true with prose novels as well. So I'll start with something really, really basic. Who are the characters? 
what is my like one page high level treatment? If it's a comic, I'll break it down by issue. And what are like my big themes? I'll usually pick like three big themes or whatever, depending on the work. What are our character arcs? And I start with that. And then from there, I'll go into a more detailed outline. And this is where things start to change depending on the medium. So if it's for comics, I'll break down each issue in more detail. If it's a video game, at that point, we start working with level designers to kind of break down how the narrative will be delivered and when throughout the game. And if it's a prose novel, at that time, I'll sit down and really like I use a software called Plotter, P-L-O-T-T-R, which is like a total lifesaver. It's basically like giant sticky note boards on walls, but in a computer. (laughs) And then I sort of plot it all out according to like whatever structure I'm going to try to use for the novel. Of course, those are always like baselines for me, but you know what I mean? I start with that kind of like, ah, here's what happens in act one, act two, act three. But I big emphasis on outlining for me, essentially, because, you know, when you're working with Marvel Press and stuff, you have to make sure that you have buy-in from all the different levels of IP holders and folks at Marvel, both on the press side, but then also on like the core Marvel side, so that you're allowed to make what you hopefully want to make. That was so descriptive. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Sorry if that was a lot. I know that no, was no, like no. a No, no, no. I think answer. that was like super helpful because I think for many people, they don't really quite understand how actually anything really gets written. There's a little bit more behind the scenes. <laughs> oh, yeah. All these mediums are super collaborative. I mean, in comics, of course, you have yourself writing the script. And I actually have had a lot of interest on my TikTok channel where I show what comic book scripts look like because to your point, not a lot of folks have ever seen one. And I think they're really interesting. And I think other people do too. But yeah, comics have, you know, you have you, the writer, the editor, and then of course your artist, which can sometimes be a penciler and an inker. You have a letterer, a colorist, maybe a flatter. Like you're looking at about like maybe 10 people, ultimately like 10 to 15 people. And then pros, of course, is the smallest team of all, but it is still a team. You're never on your own. There's yourself, you have your agent, you have your editor, And then beyond that, there's usually like a managing editor, a copy editor, and then of course any IP holders and other stakeholders. So it is like a big group project all the time, but I will say that prose does feel the most isolating as a writer. It feels the most like, okay, I just have to like shut the door and I'm, I'm in this on my own. Whereas with comics, I can kind of be like, oh, I don't know, like they kind of fight on this page. Like artists, if you have a good idea, you can go for it. (laughs) Can't really get away with that so much in prose. It's all on you to kind of come up with these ideas. And of course, your editor will help and make suggestions and stuff. But it's less of like a co-creation process and more of that like pure editorial process. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking about the Unstoppable Wasp, I mean, like, Nadia Van Dyne is obviously a newer character to the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. Was that helpful for you to have a character that didn't have as much backstory? (laughs) So much. So much. It was so great. Yeah, because I read all of Nadia's solo comics right away. And I had read some of them beforehand. I caught up. I got on the phone with Jeremy Whitley, who essentially is like the mastermind behind Nadia, to kind of ask him what the important parts of he thought of her and her team were and, you know, what he was trying to get across. And that was the phone call in which he also told me that he had always seen Nadia as asexual, which was invaluable in the writing as well. And we talked a lot about how we were dealing with her bipolar disorder and all these other things. But it was great because I wasn't suddenly having to contend with, like, to your point, 
70 years of convoluted backstory or whatever when my editor Megan Logan and I were trying to come up with like okay what should the story be at what point should it take place we were like well we'll just it'll pick up right after the comics like it's just the continuation of Nadia's story because she doesn't have a lot of story yet so we can just continue to canonically make that without getting caught up in like oh but this book says this and this comic says this and I don't know I'm gonna choose and all this stuff it was very freeing (laughs) it was really nice yeah I mean I've heard creators having to come in and be like there's so much history and how do we sort of reevaluate this to make this the best story that we can be but with Nadia she's sort of part of this new wave of characters that have come out that have really sort of evolved the audience like I mean you speak about her being asexual her being ace, I mean, that's phenomenal. That's one more sort of person out there who can relate to this character on the page. Yeah, and to our earlier point about like comics and prose being great for different reasons, you know, Jeremy had always envisioned Nadia as ace, but the comic had never really been like the right place to explore that, never really fit into any of those really action-packed focused arcs. The novel, on the other hand, you know, you can't, you're in someone's head all the time. You can't get away from dealing with that. And so it was like the perfect opportunity to explore that further. And I mean, how important was it for you to be able to, as someone who's part of the queer space, to be able to write a character that is ace? Oh, it's super, super important to me. I mean, I include queer characters in all of my work. It's something that I'm really passionate about because it took me a really long time to come to terms with my own sexuality or to understand it. It's actually something I'm still dealing with to this day. I'm in my mid-30s and I still find it a challenging and ever-shifting thing. You know, it's it's never really, for me anyway, it's never really felt like a settled thing. And I think that's because when I was growing up, I didn't have any great examples modeled of women loving women relationships or sapphic relationships or bisexual relationships or, or any of this, you know? And so I feel now that I'm a creator, it is my responsibility to put forward that kind of representation so that kids who are like me can see themselves represented on the page on the screen and know that that's completely normal and totally okay and that there are other people and heroes that they can aspire to be like who are just like them and that it's not something that they should be ashamed of and that heterosexuality is not default And they shouldn't be ashamed or scared of of who they are. And so at every opportunity, I really like to try to include my own sort of lived experience in these books. And so obviously, I'm not ace. I'm also not bipolar. I'm also not a genius scientist. So we did have many wonderful consultants on the Unstoppable Wasp Built on Hope to help me out and to make sure that I was representing those experiences like as accurately and well as I was able to. So it was important to me to do a good job. So hopefully it went okay. (laughs) I mean, it seems like it's been, I mean, it came out last year. I guess the one of the things is like, have you been able to do any like live events since then? I know the world is. It's been kind of weird. Yeah. Launching books during the pandemic has been a weird thing. That's for sure. Yeah. I can't wait for like, I know so many authors who've like released books in the last like year or so. And like, I can't wait for you to be able to like go to these events and like meet people who have read the book and they see themselves. Like, I think that's such a magical experience. And same thing with comics too. I think that that's a huge part about it. Oh, definitely. It makes a huge difference, especially as like a writer where you write your thing at home and you send it out and you, it's easy to forget that it can impact anyone else. You know, you're very like isolated. You're like, oh, okay, 
then you kind of forget that anyone else will ever read it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like until you get to things like conventions where people are like, oh, I really liked this or this meant a lot to me. And then you're like, oh yeah, that's why I'm doing this. Like it's nice to have that feedback and not just because I'm like a rampant writer narcissist, although I'm sure all <laughs> writers are to a certain extent. But yeah, it fuels the the engine a little bit. It keeps the tank full. Yeah. It's so important that you go out and you interact with the fans in a real way because you don't quite understand the power of these characters and the power of these stories until you're able to sort of see them react in the ways that they do at shows and conventions. And like, it matters so much to have that. It's true. It's my favorite thing about Comic-Cons too, is that you show up and you know you have something in common with every single other person in that room. We all love the same thing. We're all invested in this like modern mythology. It's really powerful. Yeah, it's super powerful. How do you see prose novels like The Unstoppable Wasp sort of fitting into this sort of Marvel universe, Marvel fandom world? Oh, yeah. I mean, I honestly would love to see more of them. Obviously, I'm a huge comics fan. The wonderful thing about prose novels is that it does, to your point, the audience for YA novels is mostly girls, non-binary people, not men, you know, young women. That is a market that I think has been really underserved in the superhero genre. But also, like, there are so many Marvel Cinematic Universe fans out there who really want a road into this fandom through other mediums and comics. Look, again, I love comics with all my heart. Stuff's confusing, man. There's like 80 <laughs> number ones over the span of 70 years. You don't really know where to start. Nothing really makes a ton of sense. And then there's like some crossover and you're like, oh my God, and why are they only 10 pages? And whatever. It's like a lot, right? You have to be really invested and you have to basically have someone willing to hold your hand and be like, here's the issue you should start with. <laughs> but with books, like you could just pick up a book. They're all going to Barnes and Nobles. Like they're all going to grab there are big stacks from whatever was recommended on book talk. You know what I mean? Like this is a world where they already feel welcome and comfortable. And so I think it's really important that this modern myth making and this kind of storytelling is available in this format for this audience, because not only is it certainly in my opinion, the medium that is the most forward moving and forward thinking in terms of diversity, you know, we see the most, queer stories in young adult fiction. We see the most POC stories in young adult fiction more than television or video games, certainly video games, <laughs> or like anywhere else. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's really pushing the boundaries of media further and showing, you know, in a mercenary context, showing these big corporations that there is a lot of money in telling stories for women, in telling queer stories. There is a huge audience out there waiting to throw money at you for this kind of story. And I love that YA prose fiction sort of leads the way in terms of that. And I think that if superhero fiction is not, if Marvel fiction is not included in that, we're like missing the boat, both from like a moral standpoint, but also from a market standpoint, like we're losing a lot of money. But for me as a writer, it's like, I deeply believe that representation is meaningful and matters and is important. And like, as someone who didn't benefit from that when I was younger, I feel very strongly that like, we deserve to see ourselves represented now. And also like, it's super fun. 
like writing the wasp and getting into the nitty gritty of like how it does feel to get really small. And so it was dope. Like it was so interesting to me and something that you just don't have the time to explore in a comic. So it's cool. All the mediums represent a really different opportunity for investing in and exploring different parts of these characters that we love. Yeah, I mean, that's such a great answer. And totally like, I mean, obviously, there is a level of like, how can we make money, right? But also, I think it's so important that like, not everyone is always going to read a comic, but people still care about these characters. And so their ability to sort of exit the movie theater and be like, how can I still learn more about these characters? And oh, look, there's more than just comics. Oh, there's prose, there's video games, there's so much more for them to have access to. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, this has been amazing. This is so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Before you go, where can people find you on the internet if they don't already follow you? Oh, yeah. I'm Sam Maggs, S-A-M-M-A-G-G-S on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Sam Writes A Lot on TikTok, where I spend way too much of my time (laughs) for a (laughs) 30-year-old. And, oh, I'm just wrapping up my last run on Marvel Action Captain Marvel for IDW, so you guys can pick those up now. There's 11 issues, so yeah. Yeah, and go pick up The Unstoppable Wesp if you have not yet read it. Thanks again to Sam and Nick for coming on the podcast. You should definitely pre-order Nick's new book, Shuri, Symbiosis, plus pick up all the works that we talked about with both of them. So I got to read The Unstoppable Wasp when I interviewed Sam back when that book was coming out. And I loved it. You know, it was something that like I jumped in and I was immediately engaged. So it was super fun to get to listen to your chat with her just now. I love it. And I love the way like as we kind of mentioned earlier, like you're never too old for a YA novel. Yeah. So it's obviously pick up the Sherry books. You know, you can pick up Mackenzie Lee's books. There's so many books in Marvel, but also there's tons of other books out there. Some that we mentioned at the top of the show. So go check them out. But okay, next week, Angelique is yours. What do you have for us? All right, so next week is the season finale. I am both sad and very excited. We have a really great one. We're going to be talking all about the women of Star Wars, which I know everybody in this conversation is very excited about. I got to talk to two iconic creators who worked on the original comic series in the 1980s, plus one of my favorite humans in the entire world, Alyssa Wong, who's working currently on the Dr. Afra series, which is amazing. You should go check it out. But we're going to talk to her more about that and her love of Star Wars and writing dope women in the Star Wars universe. I cannot wait to share it with you. But until then, this is Marvel, your universe. Women of Marvel is produced by Alexis Williams, Isabel Robertson, Jasmine Estrada, Ellie Pyle, Judy Stevens, and Angelique Rochet. Our development manager is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen. And our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Listen weekly on SiriusXM and on Marvel Podcasts Unlimited on Apple Podcasts. See you next week. Bye.